The concept of history begins with writing. Before we could write things down, back when we only had oral tradition, the telling of stories to share what we'd learned with each other, that was a period called prehistory. Prehistory does offer us artifacts. History began during the Stone Age, so there are tools and cave paintings and things like that, but it offers us very little in terms of intangible data. A single sentence written on a tablet somewhere might not tell us anything revelatory about the people who wrote it, but it would tell us something quite different from what the tools and art that they left behind tell us. Up until very recently, conventional theory placed the earliest known writing in Mesopotamia beginning around 4000 BCE. Burgeoning commercial powers in this region began using little clay tokens as part of their trading process several thousand years earlier, as early as 8000 BCE. These tokens were not currency. They helped the traders in the region do business with other traders, using the tokens to represent quantities of agricultural and other products to aid them in the trading process when crops had not yet been harvested and when they couldn't otherwise easily express what they were trading for what with nearby cultures. These tokens were stand-ins for these products. Eventually, as trade increased, and so too did the amount of trade that they were engaging in, they began to hold these tokens in jars, and the number of tokens in the jars were imprinted on the outside. So you might have a 100 token jar that was used during trade negotiations instead of just 100 loose tokens just sitting there needing to be recounted over and over again. And that jar would have the impression of 100 tokens marked on its surface. By around 4000 BCE, they had simplified this process further, symbolizing these jars full of tokens with another set of symbols that they would mark on clay surfaces. So instead of bringing 30 jars of 100 tokens, they could make marks on a tablet that represented those 30 jars, that showed the concept of a jar and the concept of 30 using these little hashes on a tablet. This was the beginning of a local, regionalized, symbolic written language. This language evolved out of the need to keep accounts, to produce both agreements and receipts for trade, essentially. But it was later utilized for many other things as well, and evolved from a collection of pictograms of what amounted to images representing particular ideas into a collection of symbols that represented phonetic elements of speech, allowing them to convey far more ideas with a far smaller set of ingredients. From there, it evolved further into an early alphabet, with each symbol representing the syllables of spoken Sumerian. In recent years, though, we've also discovered evidence of written language from what was previously considered to be a part of prehistory, the Neolithic period, the Stone Age, so-called because our ancestors' technology at the time was primarily stone-based. The two most important writing-related artifacts 
from this period are the Dispilio tablet and the Tartaria tablets discovered in Greece and Romania, respectively, both found at Neolithic archaeological sites and both containing symbols which seem to be some kind of early written symbolic language. The Dispilio tablet has been carbon dated to around 5200 BCE, which is over 1000 years earlier than previous estimates for the birth of written language. The Tartaria tablets, though, are a little bit trickier to date, because although radiocarbon dating puts many of the other artifacts from the site where they were found at around 5500 BCE, so even earlier than the Dispilio tablets, certain details about the symbols on the tablets, which seem to be similar and in some cases nearly identical to symbols found in early Sumerian writing systems, the ones that developed shortly after they moved away from their token system to represent tokens in clay instead, and the tablets themselves, which were raw clay, unfired when they were found, but they were fired ostensibly to preserve them by the museum that now houses them, which makes it impossible to make use of the ideal method of carbon dating them. So this finding has a lot of skepticism and speculation around it, with many experts claiming that it's possible, perhaps even likely, that these tablets are fakes mixed in with other legitimate artifacts from that time period in this area. Whatever the case may be, it's become clear over the past few decades that we as a species have been using written language for a lot longer, thousands of years longer, than even our earliest previous estimates. And that indicates that it wasn't necessarily the development of complex commerce that causes us to encode information in this way, but maybe some other circumstance or drive. And whatever that variable may be, it seems to have evolved independently around the world, inside very different cultures, catching on and becoming common at different points in time, at each location. What I want to talk about today is written language, and more specifically, reading that written language, and how our relationship with words on a page has changed, is changing, and might change in the future. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. There's a sociological term, secondary orality that refers to something like, but not exactly like, a post-literate society. Primary orality refers to the world before writing existed. Our pre-writing Paleolithic ancestors memorized information, often as stories or songs, and would convey what they could orally from person to person, and as much as they could manage generation to generation, because that was the only way they knew how to retain that information and preserve it for their descendants. Secondary orality refers to a similar state of affairs where we primarily share information verbally, spoken word and song and video and so on, but it refers to a more specific situation in which that oral primacy is predicated upon having a written language, and that primary oral method of communication is built atop that written language. The difference here is that when our Stone Age ancestors spoke and communicated, 
memorization was of the utmost importance because they knew if they didn't memorize all the stuff they wanted to preserve, it would be lost forever. There was no backup. If the one guy who knew how to kill bison died, there would be no more bison until that skill was rediscovered, relearned and practiced and taught by someone else. A society predicated on secondary orality, on the other hand, also communicates primarily orally, just like our ancestors. But while people in such a society also fixate on verbal transmission of information, they do not place the same emphasis on memorization and information encoding. It's understood that all of their information is also written down somewhere. And in fact, part of what they communicate verbally may also be written down as notes or as a script or in some other presumably permanent format. The concern here is that because we know this type of written record exists, we might take it for granted. Even as we become, over time, less literate, you don't need to read as much within a society that is primarily oriented around speech. You can just speak and listen. So people, particularly young people, who have never known any different way of doing things, will become better at communicating via speech and less competent at communicating via the written word. And over the long term, there could come a day where very few of us can actually read well enough to access all of that stored data, all of the valuable info that we wrote down at some point during our species history, which then becomes increasingly inaccessible by our descendants. We may still be able to communicate with each other and to access information stored as audio, but the written word and all of the stockpiles of generations worth of knowledge will be accessible only by the scholarly few who still commit themselves to the perhaps archaic-seeming study and comprehension of the written word. A technology that could come to seem as quaint and niche as reading hieroglyphics today. It's a neat skill, but for anyone who is not an Egyptologist, it's probably not something that you've spent too much time worrying about. And you're almost certainly not getting as much out of the stuff that's written down as the people who did the writing intended for you to get, regardless, just because of the slow creep of ignorance about that type of subject, even for enthusiasts. The article I want to start from today comes from The New Yorker, and it's entitled, Why We Don't Read Revisited. It's this piece that introduced me to the concept of secondary orality as part of a broader exploration of the role reading plays in the lives of people today. And it says revisited in the title because this is an update to a piece that this same author, Caleb Crane, wrote for The New Yorker back in 2007. That piece was entitled Twilight of the Books, with the subtitle, What Will Life Be Like If People Stop Reading? To put that prior piece in perspective, 2007 was over a decade ago, after all. The first iPhone and the first Kindle, the first and most distinctive modern smartphone and ebook reader, respectively, were both released in 2007. So that article was published amidst the furor surrounding the introduction of a new breed of technologies that might change many things in many ways. 
but also might not. These newfangled devices seemed like they could be potential vectors via which the written word could be distributed. But again, maybe not. This was before today's social media ecosystem. This was before the advent of speedy mobile internet. This was a barely remembered period when most people still used their phones as phones, strange as that might sound today. So it was a different time, and right about then, the stats were looking pretty bad for books and for literacy in general. Reading across all generational demographics was on the decline, and book sales were plummeting. The big baddie of the moment, Barnes & Noble, was crushing independent bookstores and was doing so by selling books alongside DVDs and CDs and other non-book consumer goods. And while tech-enabled audio formats like podcasts technically existed in 2007, they only received formal support from Apple in 2005. And podcasting juggernauts like the BBC, NPR, WNYC, and Bloomberg only started dipping their toes into the podcasting waters the year before this. So 2007 was a pretty pivotal year in a lot of ways. And amidst all those other shifts, the data seemed to indicate that reading was dead or dying. All was lost, and the human race would become illiterate within a generation. Now, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but the data were trending downward, and most pieces on the subject, this one included, were focused on the decline of literacy due to technological evolution, which is a topic that seems to reemerge in written form, hilariously, at least a few times a year. So this was not unique. This piece just happened to fall at a particularly pivotal moment. Now, notably, there have been periodic bumps in our demographic-based reading habit data. In 2007, even, when that original piece was written, the final Harry Potter book, The Deathly Hallows, was published, and the third and penultimate Twilight book, Eclipse, was released as well. These two series and a few other works that proved popular in a variety of major book-buying markets goosed the numbers a bit for several years, increasing the fortunes of booksellers, including Amazon, which had been around since the mid-90s, but which at this moment was beginning to make some major moves, including the aforementioned release of the Kindle ebook reader. So those books bumped the numbers for a handful of years, particularly for younger demographics. But the general trend as noted in that article, was a downward trajectory. Books just could not seem to compete with television, and increasingly, other media like video games and the internet as well. People were just not reading like they used to. Other mediums had moved in, rearranged the furniture, and made themselves at home in the minds and habits of Americans in particular, as that's where a lot of this data was gathered, but also, seemingly, in many other countries around the world at about the same time. Now flash forward to this new piece published mid-2018, and you'll notice the perception of reading has changed a bit. Today, we have always-on, always-connected devices in our pockets, and many of us check these devices dozens or hundreds of times a day, primarily interacting with them, at least for the time being, visually. We also have an array of ways to access published materials from high-quality ebook readers that, by some 
measures are actually better for your eyes if you read using them for a long period of time, as opposed to reading those same words on printed pieces of paper. And we have new methods of publishing printed work as well. Of particular note are print-on-demand services, which when combined with e-commerce services like those offered by Amazon, has made publishing printed books and then selling them directly to consumers far simpler and more accessible. It has allowed a far broader and more diverse group of people to get their work published and to get that published work into the hands of the reading public. So there's actually a whole lot of reading going on these days and a lot of publishing as well. The change in focus today seems to be more about distinguishing between different types of reading and more specifically separating focused longer duration reading from the quick twitch, unfocused reading that most of us do all throughout the day, every day. It's not, in other words, about figuring out how many times people look at written language in a day and read that information. It's about figuring out how much time we spend with long format works like books compared to the time that we spend with short format works like text messages and tweets and even things like blogs, which can vary wildly in length and quality and even format. There are several reasonable ways one might look at the research that has been done on this subject recently. One could, for instance, wonder about the purpose of fixating on reading in this way to begin with. After all, do we not learn from podcasts? I hope so. Don't we learn from Netflix documentaries? Why do we treat, for instance, the fiction contained in books as more legitimate than the fiction contained in a film or a TV show? We might also wonder why words in books and other long-form mediums are considered to be more important or valid than words contained in a tweet or a Facebook message. The written word is the written word. So why all of this concern over format and length and context? And we could also ask whether books are the optimal way to be taking in this kind of information, this type of long-form communication to begin with. Let's start with that first question of why we seem to celebrate writing over other types of communication and presentation. I mentioned the concept of secondary orality earlier, the idea that we might move on from the written word to spoken words, storing most of what we know as written language, but slowly moving away from the ability or desire to parse it, to actually read and understand our language in that visual format. There's a parallel concern here, though, that we may lose the ability to see and understand change across time lacking the perceived need, ability, or desire to document information in a concrete, unchanging way. When we tell stories, when we communicate information from person to person and across time, from grandparent to grandchild, for instance, the accuracy of the information communicated potentially diminishes with each transmission. This happens because of how our brains work, our memories can weaken with time, and also because of how communication works. It's possible to tell someone something and to have them misunderstand or misconstrue what you've just said. 
The childhood game of telephone, where you sit in a line with a bunch of other kids and whisper in your neighbor's ear, and they and their neighbors, and on and on and on, till then at the end of the line, the last person says out loud what they believe they heard. That game is illustrative of how all of this works. Generally, for a variety of reasons, by the time that simple phrase you started out with on one end reaches the other end, it has morphed into something else completely. Sometimes something completely nonsensical, but often something new and semi-sensical. The misheard information along the way was interpreted and reinterpreted as something new. And that interpretation, developed at each step of the way, was then communicated to the next kid as real, as fact, as the correct words handed down from their progenitor, the first kid in the line. This happens with information communicated down through the ages by oral tradition as well. There's a very good chance that many of our myths and religions are predicated on information that was miscommunicated, misheard, misunderstood, or reinterpreted by someone along the way, which eventually resulted in us believing that this really cool guy who was nice to everyone and pretty dang smart started raising the dead, and which also has us believing that a really big lizard someone saw this one time was actually a dragon. What's more, because we don't have a tangible permanent record to check the validity of what we thought we heard, there's no way to know that our dragon wasn't real. And there's no way to know that our belief in dragons maybe isn't even as ancient as we think. It could very well be a misinterpretation that emerged just a generation or two ago. Started with a kid just a few kids down the telephone line from us. And because we have no way to check the original source, or even the vector of this story a few people back, because those ancestral people are dead, all we can do is keep passing it on, trying to keep it in the original form in which we received it, but never knowing whether that form, whether that story, is anywhere close to the original information that our ancestors wanted us to know. Spoken language, as disseminated by TV and film and radio and podcasts and every other method that we have concocted to spread it far and wide, is more temporal than the written language. There's a chance that as our software gets better at identifying spoken words, taking into account all languages and accents and lisps and whatever else, that we will be able to document and file and search these recordings better than we can today, creating some kind of usable historical archive that will allow us to check whether that guy a few steps away from us in the game of telephone actually did see a dragon, or whether he maybe just saw a really big lizard. But at the moment, at least, even audible information that is recorded and stored is not as accessible and easily referenceable as its written counterparts meaning it is still more temporal and less useful as a permanent record against which we can check what we thought we heard than the written word is, in most cases. This is important, especially as our technologies evolve to allow us to intentionally sow misinformation and disinformation more widely and quickly than ever before. The ability to fact-check is vital, and it's currently, for a lot of reasons, much easier to just say whatever you like, whether it's a lie or the truth, and then backtrack later without consequence, than it is to publish something and then attempt to do the same. The written word, at the moment, is more permanent. 
And the spoken word, currently at least, is far more temporal. So why, then, are the words published in books considered to be more legitimate than the words published in text messages or emails or on websites? Part of this segmentation, no doubt, is about the stats that we're able to collect. And when there is a prominent industry involved, there will almost always be more and more rigorous data available because those industries go out of their way to collect it. And other industries as well will try to track that industry for an assortment of purposes. So we know more about book publishing than, for instance, podcasting because the nature of the industry allows for more thorough data collection and because currently there is more money at stake. And that means more effort is being put into figuring out who is getting that money and how the people using that data can make use of that information to get a bigger chunk of that money. The other main distinction, though, has to do with how our brain functions when engaged in deep, focused reading compared to how it functions when engaged in passive, quick, broken interval reading. Mountains of data have shown that focused reading activates our brains in a different way than unfocused reading. So while, yes, you are technically reading that text message and technically reading that post your uncle just published on Facebook, that's not the same thing as reading a book in terms of what's happening in your brain. Both involve words on a surface that contain encoded meaning but the process of reading a book is neurologically different from reading a few lines or paragraphs of text in a more rapid-fire transitory medium. The content of longer works, of books, but also other in-depth works like investigative journalism pieces published on sites like Longreads, these tend to be more complex and immersive than other things you read as well, in the sense that you're probably going to be reading it for maybe 15 minutes or longer. So at that point, your brain and perceptual skills shift into a different gear. More casual reading, that which you engage in for a few minutes at a time, or as is increasingly common, less than a minute at a time, as you read that headline of that article or the comments on an article or that text you just received from a friend, that's something that we do fairly passively. It does not trigger the same internal mechanisms that help us soak up information, that prime us to seek out facts and attach them to things that we already know, to establish context and store vital information in our long-term memory. And the latter seems to be true, according to most of the research that's been done on the subject thus far, of most of those reading hacks that some people try to use to consume larger quantities of written information faster. Speed reading and skimming methods may allow you to actually look at more words faster, but your brain is unlikely to flip into contextualization and comprehension mode. So those words are unlikely to stick in the way that they would if you actually took the time to read them in the usual way. So even knowing all that, why is it that we still seem to think books are the optimal way to do this type of information absorbing? Surely, by now, technology will have figured out a way to improve this experience in some way. Well, that is a tricky question to answer. Much of the research done in this space on reading and books and even broader information communication often asks these questions with the assumption that books are good and that reading books is an essential component of education. 
of a child's development of continued growth for adults, books are the familiar default method for doing these things. And so when we introduce new possibilities, books tend to be the yardstick against which we measure all else. And they are also the resting stance that we pull back to when some new, crazy, unfamiliar technology turns out to have some kind of flaw. Books have flaws as well, but they are flaws that we have come to know over the past several thousand years. So we don't consider those to be deal breakers in the same way that we might with a newer, relatively untested innovation. Now, I will admit, I am highly biased here. I write books for a living, but I'm also just a huge book nerd. I was the kid back in school who would sit and read during recess. I spent my summers reading every piece of fiction I could get my hands on, and I won an award in middle school for checking out 152 books from the school library in a single year. I love books. I spend a great deal of my time each week just reading books, being able to set aside my finite hours for that exclusive purpose is something that I have worked hard to ensure that I can do. It is a quality of life issue for me. That said, this bias in favor of books within this type of research and extending far and wide into media industries and education and everything else, that bias in favor of books often to the exclusion of other types of learning and entertainment, both those that are reading-focused in some other way and those that are not reading-focused at all, I find this bias to be a little short-sighted. We have done, as a species, a whole lot of research that demonstrates the benefits of reading, but that does not imply that there are not suitable alternatives to achieve many of those same purposes available in other mediums. And that doesn't imply that other mediums may not be superior vectors for certain type of information, for learning and for entertainment when compared to books. Again, I say this as a hardcore book fan, someone who worked at an indie bookstore for five years. As wonderful as books are, the research that's been done in this space thus far has been heavily slanted toward the assumed supremacy of books over all other mediums, from television to video games to reading stuff on the internet. And I think that bias does society a disservice. There is research that shows that reading fiction before going to sleep can increase a person's practical IQ by a few points for the next several days, in addition to slowing down the parts of the brain that can otherwise spiral and keep us awake, stressing out over real and imagined concerns and regrets. There's research that shows our comprehension skills increase the more books we read per year, and there's associative data that shows a correlation between reading books and earning more income. There's research that indicates people who read more books have, on average, higher academic credentials, are better at climbing the corporate ladder, and even score better on empathy tests. There's also well-documented evidence that people who read more books have, on average, far larger vocabularies than those who do not, and as a consequence, may experience the world in a richer way may see more possibilities but also have a wider variety of experiences because it's thought that we perceive things, at least in part, based on the words that we have to describe them. So a smaller vocabulary means a smaller range of possible experiences, at least in theory. Now, some of this research 
that led to these findings is very convincing and was done with very rigorous standards in place. But some of it is less so. Anything that involves standardized testing, for instance, will almost certainly, by default, be biased toward reading comprehension. So testing IQ and academic performance is biased at its root level in favor of that medium. That doesn't mean this testing isn't legitimate and that it was not done well within the confines of the way they set it up, but it does mean, again, that our fingers are on the scale when we use these sorts of metrics. Being able to write a clever essay is not the same thing as being intelligent, and being able to quickly parse information from a written paragraph on a page is not an indication of a person's cleverness. It's also important to recognize that much of this research only shows correlation, not causation. So the association between income and book reading could have a flipped causal relationship to that which is often implied by those who reference this data. It's implied that reading more books helps you become wealthier. But it could very well be that people who have wealth can afford to take the time to read more. Or they experience more social pressures to read due to the perceived value of reading as an activity amongst their wealthier-than-average peer group. It could also be that wealthier families pass on this bias to their children, who then read a whole lot and do better academically and professionally. But those two things don't necessarily have to be connected. Their path was arguably paved in such a way that's more reflective of those wealth-based advantages that they had than any advantages gained from their associated reading habits. I personally think it would be interesting to see what would happen if we came up with tests that aimed to assess these same sorts of things in different ways. Maybe the testing could take place in a virtual environment, like a video game, and could be conducted orally or by clicking through user interfaces, similar to what many people who primarily interact with information on their smartphones might be more familiar with than large bodies of text. It would also be illuminating to see more data related to the reading of long-form fiction and nonfiction online compared to the same in print books and ebook formats to see if the difference between reading context and interface makes any difference to some of what we seem to know about focus and comprehension changes based on those variables being tweaked. An increasing amount of audiobook and podcast data is also beginning to roll in, which should help shed some light on the difference in perception and retention of information between people who are exposed to the same content in different formats. We don't really have enough data to make confident statements quite yet, but I suspect, based on nothing but anecdote really, so this is just my personal prediction here, but I suspect we will find some people retain spoken information better, but that most people experience something like the speed reading illusion when listening to audiobooks meaning they are exposed to the information, the words are all there, but they retain less of it because they are not completely focused and fully engaged in what they're listening to most of the time. Now, I hope I'm wrong about that as someone who enjoys audiobooks, but it seems to fit with what I've experienced at times personally and what I've read about the subject elsewhere. So to loop back around and answer the question of why we favor books over other mediums, the answer is mostly 
that books are our default. They are traditional in a way that other mediums are not. And we have more data to support their benefits, and we're more familiar and accepting of their flaws. That doesn't mean other mediums are not beneficial in the same or in other ways, but we generally can't prove it yet. And it may be slow going collecting that kind of data because doing so generally requires a mature industry in which that research can take place and widely agreed upon metrics that can be consistently applied within that medium, which can be tricky, especially with newer technologies that are still a little rough around the edges and figuring out the shape they'll eventually take. Interestingly, a lot of the newer book-specific data have more to do with novel technologies than with the traditional formats upon which many of our metrics are based. Much of the growth in book reading seems to be taking place on devices. Ebook readers had their boom a handful of years ago, and though that growth has largely petered off with fewer people buying and using ebook reading specific devices, the growth in people reading on their tablets and even more so on their smartphones has been fundamental to the overall growth of the book publishing industry. There have been some bumps in the numbers of paperback books sold in recent years, typically aligning with the release of a new entry in some popular fiction series. But in general, young people reading on their phones makes up the bulk of the good news in the book publishing world. And that particular data point ties to a few other data points. Young people are now reading more than older people. College graduates are reading a whole lot more than non-college graduates. And getting even more granular, Hispanics who are born within the U.S. are more likely to have read a book in the past year when compared to Hispanics living in the U.S. who were not born in the U.S., which maybe reveals a divide in the cultural value of book reading, but more likely, just like with those other two stats I just mentioned that compare young and old and traditionally educated versus non-traditionally educated, it probably reveals a divide between people who can afford decent smartphones and who use those smartphones regularly versus those who cannot and do not. The correlation in data between those sorts of groups, the haves and have-nots, the tech-savvy and non-tech-savvy, seems to be stronger than between those groups that strictly rely on age and other cultural demographic distinctions to make these comparisons. Alongside all the data that seem to have finally given in and included ebooks alongside their traditionally printed brethren, is a small amount of research that indicates it's possible that things like handwriting and reading words on a physical page could be better for learning and information retention than the same activities performed digitally. These studies have not been well replicated yet, and the research does not seem super convincing to me at this point. The theory may be sound that the more tactile muscle memory involving behaviors 
of repeating the shapes of letters using our hands and holding a physical artifact, turning the pages, associating bits of information with actual physical space in the real world could help us better remember and contextualize that information. That makes sense to me, but it could also just be a neat theory that makes a sort of logical sense, but which is not replicated in further research and therefore is kind of a false path. It could be, too, that these studies were conducted using subjects who grew up handwriting and reading paper books and who were therefore primed for that sort of activity. The familiarity factor could be more vital in these circumstances than the medium. So this may or may not actually be a thing. There could be kind of an analog bias going on here that is similar to the book bias that happens elsewhere. This possibility, of course, is worth keeping in mind and experimenting with individually. If you personally have trouble remembering things that you read or learn, it may be that tactile interaction with your information mediums works well for some people and not as well for others. It could also turn out to be a really vital component of learning for essentially everyone that taps into something that we have at a biological level, but which we are not utilizing terribly well so far in the digital age. We do not know enough about this yet to be certain, but it's something to keep an eye on as we study this potential moving forward. Either way, though, it may be helpful to remember that reading is not natural. No matter how we do it, no matter what medium we use, the act of encoding information in written language is an act several times removed from nature. And it's arguably one of the first society-enabling technologies that we invented as a species. It turned us into cyborgs, allowing us to use symbols as kind of an external hard drive. It allowed us to take information we were holding in our brains and to write it down, to put it somewhere else, like storing data on a USB stick. And we can then share that information, like transmitting it via the internet or some kind of diskette to our peers, to our contemporaries, and to people who have not been born yet, to future generations. This technology is old by civilizational standards. It was one of the seeds that we planted to invent modern society. But by biological standards, written language is still this incredibly new, weird, and wonderful novelty. Our bodies and brains don't know quite what to make of it. And as a consequence, our internal systems haven't yet evolved to work it into our fundamental processes. What that means is that there's no definitive correct way to do this. We have plenty of reason to assume that focused learning is superior to unfocused learning, because that's something we see even beyond written word learning. With any activity, if you focus, compared to giving it half your attention, you'll pick it up faster and retain it better and learn it more effectively and efficiently almost always. So that in mind, I would argue that when we talk about the harmful information fragmentation of the modern world and our seeming lack of attention span, the real culprit here is not TV or video games or smartphones. It's distraction. It's multitasking. It's our tendency due to personal preference, cultural expectation, and incentivized habit to spread our attention thin pull it in a million directions at once, which in turn deadens our capacity to do any one thing optimally, and that includes learning. 
There's a great deal of research to support the assertion that no one can actually multitask. Many of us think that we can because our brains have a tendency to mistake being busy for being productive. But more and more data keeps rolling in, showing that although we feel productive when we're multitasking, we are actually dropping our practical IQ, a measurement of how well we perform cognitive tasks within a given period, by up to 15 points. And there's evidence that multitasking can lower our so-called EQ, our emotional quotient, which measures our ability to perceive and understand emotional states within ourselves and others, as well. Multitasking while driving has been shown to lower the driver's response time to about the same levels as a drunk driver, which is why it's vitally important that you do not text or check your email while behind the wheel. But this same sluggishness applies across the board. I cannot emphasize enough how clear it is, based on the data that we have, that multitasking cripples us mentally and lowers our performance across the board while simultaneously making us think that we're totally crushing it. There's essentially no data that indicates the opposite of this. And that is unusual. So it's worth thinking about how you might recalibrate your day and your habits to ensure you can do one thing at a time. And I know that's a big ask, because the world seems to be determined to keep us spread thin. And this is particularly true of young people who take the full brunt of today's marketing efforts alongside all the other messages that are vying for their attention all day every day. The social lives of young people are more tangled up in technologies and platforms that make those marketing efforts extra pervasive and distracting. So although it's tempting to criticize teenagers and 20-somethings and 30-somethings even for being unfocused and buried in their phones all the time, remember that there are billions of marketing dollars working hard to keep them there and distracted for as long as possible each and every day. It's actually a fairly monumental accomplishment that any of us, no matter what the age, manage to extract ourselves from that sort of gravity for any amount of time. But younger people today, in particular, have more to fight against than most of the rest of us. So that's worth keeping in mind. Books are amazing. I love them so much. But they are not the only valid medium of communication and education. And much of the public outcry about the death of book reading has more to do with distraction than with a culture that's just uninterested in that particular format. That doesn't mean the book industry will not undergo ebbs and flows of enthusiasm and healthfulness, and it doesn't mean our underlying systems will not continue to contain a bias in favor of books for a good long time. It's likely they will, because books have been a kind of touchstone of communication excellence for most of modern human history, especially post-industrial revolution. If we want to maintain our collective literacy, though, and to avoid the downsides of a potential secondary oral age, it's prudent that we begin to honestly assess the other options that we have alongside books, and to give them the benefit of the doubt whenever possible, judging them by new separate, medium-specific standards, and figuring out what role they might play, how they might best serve us, rather than criticizing metal for not being wood and criticizing TV shows for not being books. 
It's possible to celebrate books while also celebrating video games, and it's possible to earnestly fight to maintain literacy while also encouraging the further enthusiastic exploration of the verbal, visual, tactile, and interactive communication spaces. Today, I would like to recommend a video game. And this video game, I think, is very appropriate for the topic of today's episode. It's an indie game that came out several years ago, and it's won a whole bunch of awards, and I can tell why. It's a relatively simple concept that was done incredibly well, and the narrative is spectacular, and the concept is truly bizarre and hilarious. The game is called The Stanley Parable, and you can pick it up a bunch of different places. I bought it on Steam to play on my laptop. And this game seems relatively straightforward at first. It's kind of a first-person view. There's kind of a weird office space vibe about it where there seems to be a statement about free will and the work that we do and the cogs in machines that we become when working for big corporations. But the real game begins after you beat the game the first time. And I say the first time because there's something like 20 different endings that you can accomplish. That first game ending that you reach, if you're anything like me, will take you less than 10 minutes to get to. But it's at that point that the game takes on a different tone and starts to spiral and change. And the charming narrator that describes everything that you're doing, essentially, becomes something a little bit different. At times a little bit antagonistic, at times quite deep, at times very morose. And I don't want to say a whole lot more than that, except that this is a game that questions the very nature of games and the nature of free will, and what we can be convinced to do and not to do, and how people who create the structures around us in which we operate can manipulate us, and the nature of art and creation in general, and losing control over our work, but also not being able to control other people's perception of our work. There's a lot of layers to this game, despite the fact that it is so relatively structurally simple. And to me, it's a perfect thing to recommend at the end of this episode in particular, because it's a wonderful example of a story and a concept that would not have made sense in any other medium. This is a video game that I think would be untranslatable to any other medium. And it says so much about creation in general. But without that interactive element, without the things that make video games video games and make them not books or not films, for instance, that's exactly what makes this such a strong narrative in this case. So if that sounds interesting to you, The Stanley Parable is a hilarious, at times disturbing, very interesting game that you can pick up. You can find out more about my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of this podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a list of tour dates and buy tickets for my upcoming tour at becomingatour.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say hello on social media, Instagram and Twitter and so on, at Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.